Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, a podcast engineered by Fractal Recording and produced by me, your host, Laura Shin, a senior editor at Forbes covering all things crypto. Thanks for tuning in. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please help get the word out about the show. Share it on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or in your secret Slack and Telegram channels. And if you have a chance, give the show a rating or review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Big thanks to our sponsor, OnRamp. If you're having an ICO, a token sale, a token allocation event, a token generation event, or whatever other phrase you come up with to try not to get on the SEC's radar, you need a website. Check out OnRamp. This full-service creative and design agency provides its clients with attractive and persuasive branding, websites, and marketing materials. Spark interest in your project, generate buzz. Check out thinkonramp.com. The topic of today's episode is Bitcoin's intense and incredibly expensive game of chicken, which is nearing at least the first cliff. With me today to discuss the upcoming events of this asset, this digital goal that has started all this cryptomania are Eric Lombroso, a Bitcoin core developer, and Brian Hoffman, CEO of OB1, which runs the project Open Bazaar, the eBay of the decentralized web. Welcome, Eric and Brian. Thanks for having me, Laura. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me on. Okay, so I'm going to start this discussion with a little framing for our listeners, um, as particularly those who are new to the space, so that we can dive into the meat of the discussion. About three years ago, the Bitcoin community began to face the question of how to scale the network. Some of the early core developers that had been deeply involved in the project wanted to lift a cap of one megabyte that limits the amount of transactions that can be processed at any given moment. Uh, they wanted to lift that um, uh, you know, from one megabyte to different caps, such as some of the different proposals were like eight megabytes, 20 megabytes, a flexible cap. Um, but that cap at the moment, uh, the, this or the new proposal seems to that seems to have the most support from people is two megabytes. However, that framing of big blocks versus small blocks is only one way of looking at this question. Another big issue that the question raises is whether or not to conduct a hard fork in order to scale the network since that is what would be required in order to change that cap. The core developers say that doing so runs the risk of splitting the chain, which could result in two versions of Bitcoin, and that would have a deleterious effect on Bitcoin's reputation as digital gold. A couple years ago, they began working on another scaling solution called Segregated Witness that would essentially enable more data to be processed in blocks without requiring a hard fork. It also included a fix for a problem called transaction malleability. SegWit, as it became known, was also greatly anticipated because pushing it through would enable something called the Lightning Network, and that would bring many more transactions to Bitcoin, not necessarily all on the Bitcoin blockchain, but to be settled on it. At some point, the devs and the miners had a meeting in Hong Kong where the attendees signed a document agreeing to implement both SegWit and hard fork to two megabytes. But what actually happened in this meeting is a dispute because the attendees had different conceptions about how much authority this agreement had. 
Regardless, once the work was done to begin implementing SegWit, only about 30 to 40% of miners actually gave it support, but the threshold necessary to implement it was 95%. One miner in particular who owned the largest mining pool as well is a company called Bitmain, headed up by a man named Jihan Wu. And Bitmain is also the largest uh, mining chip manufacturer, and they opposed SegWit unless a block size increase came along with it. So a stalemate occurred. Uh, SegWit was sort of held hostage by uh, Bitmain's desire to see this uh, one megabyte block size increased. And as the divide deepened, each side began essentially threatening to cut the other side out of Bitcoin. And I did write a few articles on this, which I can link to in the show notes. However, in May, Barry Silbert, who's the head of Digital Currency Group, which is the biggest blockchain VC firm, brokered an agreement among the biggest economic actors in Bitcoin to push through something that they're calling SegWit2x, um, or it's often called the New York Agreement as well, which basically says that SegWit will be implemented with 80% of mining power. And then after that, the network will upgrade to um, a two megabyte block size limit through a hard fork. It's essentially the Hong Kong agreement from a year and a half ago, uh, just with some details that are different. And the companies that signed this agreement include some of the biggest economic actors in the space, such as Coinbase, Blockchain, Zappo, Shapeshift, and of course, Bitmain, which is this company that is uh, most reviled and blamed for holding SegWit hostage. So in response, uh, there was more support began to build for something called a user-activated soft fork, or UASF, and that actually also risks causing a chain split. So the deadlines for both SegWit2x and for the UASF are nearing. At the moment of recording, it's actually Thursday afternoon. It looks, we're very close for um, to, for SegWit2x to, to be locked in. Um, so Bit91. Well, okay. <laughs> it's called uh, BIP91 for those of you who um, maybe don't follow all the technical details. Um, and that, and if it does go through, then that should prevent a chain, the chain split that could have been caused by the US, UASF. But it doesn't resolve the question of whether or not we will see a chain split in November, which is when the hard fork to uh, move to the two megabyte um, block size will actually take place. So that's everything. It's a very long summary, but uh, we needed to get through that backstory in order to have a media discussion. So I actually want to start our talk with Brian. Brian, Obi-Wan signed the New York Agreement. Why? So, uh, you know, I think that was a pretty good summary of of what's happened uh, at a pretty high level. I mean, it's been several years now, and and obviously there's a lot of details left out uh, between this, but... You know, I mean, from from our perspective, I mean, we I'm not a, a core dev uh, as as Eric is, or or even work with the the Bitcoin core code directly. But you know, we we built a business and a and an open source project on top of the protocol, and, and you know, our success as well as a lot of other uh, groups that are building, you know, on top of the Bitcoin's network effect, understand that you know the project has to scale in order to be able to support. Uh, what these these groups want to do, and I think that there's this um, disagreement about how that happens. But you know, ultimately, the most important thing for us is that we try to move forward in some in some um, way that all parties that are are 
pertinent to the discussion are not uh, fighting with each other. And and so, and, you know, but, so but I'm wondering, like when you were saying, you know, it's necessary to scale, uh, as we mentioned earlier, SegWit actually would enable more transactions to occur on the network at any given moment. So why sign the agreement that would not only bring SegWit 2x, but also increase the block size limit? Well, I mean, I think, it, first of all, it's important to understand that, like, there was a time before uh, SegWit existed. And there were many discussions around how Bitcoin could scale before SegWit is, was even a thing. Um, and I think a lot of the people that uh, feel this way about uh, scaling, that SegWit is not the optimal op- option, uh, are the ones that are pu- have been pushing back for the last few years. And I think, you know, fair or not, they feel that uh, SegWit, giving SegWit now is, is, is a compromise that moves the, the market forward without you know, ruining too many things, but yet a, a hard fork later on would, would be the part that they would be most interested in. And I think, you know, I, I think the, the conversation has been reframed where, you know, oh, well, everybody agrees that SegWit is awesome and the hard fork is not great, is not great. But that's not how these people feel. Oh, in interesting. So what, what is their objection to SegWit? Why do they feel it's not the optimal solution? I mean, it, this this conversation could probably get in the weeds, and, and Eric could probably talk circles around me in terms of whether it's it's you know technically accurate. But my understanding is that you know SegWit could be enabled through a, through a hard fork method method, and it could do. Uh, there are several other defects in the protocol that we could also kind of package as part of that hard fork and clean up the code. And instead, um, many of them feel that SegWit in its current implementation as a soft fork is a little bit hacky and, and maybe not as clean as it could be. And, and I think they, that's the choice was made in order to sacrifice not having this or to have backwards compatibility with other apps instead of breaking the network, maybe with a chain split. Oh, interesting. And then, and then, and then for them or for them, and I'm assuming you, why is it that increasing the block size is the better way to go? I mean, obviously, increasing the block size is only a temporary fix. I think everybody pretty much agrees that that that's true. And and I think there's a lot of potential outcomes here. Uh, We could raise the block size and it could immediately be filled up with spam and and be a problem once again, uh, which is what some people speculate. And maybe it's a it holds us off for another year. But I think for, for me, the most important aspect of this is that I don't feel that this change is something that is going to long-term harm Bitcoin and, and the and the goodwill and, and positivity that comes out of actually moving all of the players in Bitcoin forward um, together is going to allow us to not have to go through these Mexican standoffs every time uh, there's a, a critical change to be made to the network. Well, but wait, but do you think it is moving everyone forward together? Because I see that the core devs are not moving forward. Or, I mean, you know, they're sort of being forced they along. One, but they, they, they wrote BIP 91. I mean, uh, you know. Uh, Segway 2X. But I mean, BIP 91 and the whole, all, everything that's going on with like making sure that the transition going is going smooth. I mean, there's a lot of core developers actually working on making sure that, uh, that, that Segway actually activates and it's smooth and there aren't any market disruptions. So, so there are there are uh, uh, you know core developers that are actually actively working on trying to make this uh, transition as smooth as possible. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, okay. I, I agree, and I think that this. I mean, there that does not mean that everybody agrees <laughs> with what's happening, but I think we're all 
trying to work together to make sure that this isn't a disaster in any some some way because ultimately the market is deciding that segwit is going to happen right we're obviously seeing bit 91 is probably going to be activated soon yeah um, but not just segwit but segwit 2x which is a different thing well, we don't know about that. That's like several months, uh, you know, further on. I yeah. think right now, like we're just concerning ourselves with like the current activation and then like seeing what's going to happen because a lot of things can happen between now and three months. Okay, but so I want to go back to at this point about whether or not the core devs are coming along because they wanted to, or sort of because they realized that it's happening anyway, and so they need to jump aboard. What which is it? Well, let, let me just clear up a few things. You know, when you talk about core devs, you're really talking about a whole bunch of volunteers that, you know, work from all over the world. It's not just like this one homogenous group that like agrees on everything. Uh, there's, there's a lot of internal, you know, disagreements and minor tiffs of, you know, different, different approaches of doing certain things. But for the most part, I think there's a general agreement as to the general roadmap as far as like, you know, the best way to, to move things forward. Um, and, but let me, let me just comment a few things if I can, um, just to give a little bit of context of, of my current situation in this. Uh, when I first started working on Bitcoin, I saw it as a proof of concept. I did not see it as a completed product. Um, it was only worth like, you know, the market, there were barely any markets and it was worth just like a couple dollars or something like that. And um, when was that? This was like 2011. Okay. And um, I expected it to become obsolete to, you know, for someone else to come up with a better cryptocurrency that would replace it eventually. That was kind of my expectation. And then I saw the rise of Ripple and Ethereum and several other projects, which I participated in in the early stages, hoping that we would be able to fix some of the issues with Bitcoin and create a better cryptocurrency. So it's not like I was a big a Bitcoin maximalist that thought that, you know, it, it's got to be Bitcoin and everyone's got to, you know, do it this way. Um, I always thought that if someone came up with a better idea and wanted to have a better cryptocurrency, that was fine. Uh, it'd probably be called something other than Bitcoin. So like you have Ethereum or Ripple or whatever, right? Um, and eventually maybe users would migrate over to that uh, because it would be a better platform at some point. Uh, but uh -huh. then I quickly saw that other projects made even worse mistakes than I think Bitcoin made. And uh, there was a huge breakthrough, which was the discovery of how to be able to change consensus rules in a backwards compatible way. And this was, this was like the really big breakthrough that made me believe which is called a soft fork. Well, yeah, soft fork plus a whole bunch of other things that go into it. It's not being a soft fork alone doesn't make it backwards compatible, but it's an important tool in the whole arsenal of making things backwards compatible. Um, so, for instance, like the you know the way that. And, and, is, but just for people who don't know what all this means, the the reason that that's significant is because then you can prevent a chain split and therefore prevent two versions of Bitcoin uh, being created. Is that is that it? That's that's one of the big points. And the other one is disenfranchising people. For instance, if you change compatibility, then maybe people's preferred programs are no longer going to work on the network anymore. Or maybe uh, coins or contracts that they had before are no longer going to be honored by the new rules or stuff like that. So um, it, that's also an important factor that, that figures into the backwards compatibility. Uh, and, and a soft fork alone is not enough to ensure that. For instance, the soft fork could be used to blacklist addresses. And that's something that's a big no-no. That's something that I don't think anyone any of the developers would support, for instance, even if it could be done as a soft fork. So it's really the combination of no chain split plus making it an optional feature in the sense that people that don't want to use the feature are not adversely affected by other people using the feature. So um, it was discovered that it was possible to extend Bitcoin in a lot of different ways uh, by committing to extra data, to the hash of an extra data in a block. And um, I, I think, you know, some people have made a, a, a big deal of whether it'd be easier to implement 
you know, something like Segwit is a hard fork or not. And the truth is, no, actually, it's it's really no different. It's just where the commitment actually is placed. Um, obviously, with a hard fork, if we have full ability, if the full ability to change anything we want, and we don't care about compatibility, uh, you know, we could start from scratch, and with the lessons of the past, we could fix a lot of other things if we wanted to. But uh, one of the big challenges, and I think this is the biggest engineering challenge in Bitcoin. It's like when I when I design a lot of other systems, I usually, especially if I get to start from the early stages try to design it from the start the way that I want it to be. But Bitcoin is how it is right now, and we're bootstrapping this network that already has a lot of value, and the real engineering challenge isn't, you know, how would I build it from scratch uh, better, but how can I take what exists right now and modify it in a way that isn't going to break it, that's going to add the functionality that we want. So for you, it sounds like you feel like the number one priority at any point when you are making decisions about how to develop the protocol is whether or not you can make that change in a backwards compatible manner, which would therefore prevent a chain split. Is that what That's you're saying? That's a huge component, yes. And if, it, if, and if it's not possible to do that, then I would probably consider doing something like Ethereum or Ripple, which is a separate blockchain. So, I mean, if I wanted to really change Bitcoin drastically and do something that was very different, that it was very hard to do in a backwards compatible way, I would probably just start a new blockchain. So I want to actually just take these thoughts and shift them over to Segwit2x. Here we are at this moment where it looks really likely that BIP91 Segwit2x is going to go through, which means that Segwit will lock in. And then in November, um, there's likely to be this hard fork to a two megabyte limit. So what is your position on that? Do you think that it's a good thing or a bad thing that this is probably going to happen? Well, first, let me clear something up. The whole minor signaling thing is actually an arbitrary mechanism that was added to the software um, to help coordination and to make the transition smoother. The first Wait, and by minor like, signaling, you mean this is how we come up with these uh, percentages, like 80 percent threshold yeah, exactly, and stuff? Exactly. Okay. That was actually, uh, you know, something that was that was uh, invented way after Bitcoin actually started. The first few uh, soft forks did not use that mechanism at all. They how just did those had, go through? They just had a, a flag date or, or a block height and basically you know users would run the updated software and at some point blocks that did not conform to the new rules would just basically be rejected by those nodes so so it was a form of user activated software even if it wasn't called that the minor signaling was added later uh, with a mechanism that's called is super majority and uh, i believe it was a uh, BIP 30 something or other. That was the first one that was deployed this way. And what this allowed was for miners to signal, uh, you know, intent to start enforcing the rule, which made it so that it was easier to transition the network more smoothly and give people time to make sure that, uh, that they don't end up mining orphan blocks or that they don't end up accepting invalid confirmations and stuff like that. So, so it's do really, you think that it's a good thing that this is the way we do it now? Well, it was a, it was a coordination mechanism that expected cooperation. And as long as as there was cooperation between developers, industry, miners, users, etc., um, it was fine. Uh, but the problem is when you get this kind of adversarial scenario, and in this kind of a situation, it just does not work at all. Uh, I believe that it has been abused uh, and, and it's been given way more importance than it really has. For instance, this whole 95% thing, that was an arbitrary choice that was made in the soft in this in the SegWit deployment. Um, it could have been made as low as probably 60 or even lower, and probably still would have been relatively safe, but there probably would have been a few miners that would have mined a few bad blocks and there might have been, you know, a couple, you know, small chain splits, just a few blocks deep and then other issues like that. 95 just makes it so it's like almost guaranteed that there's going to be almost no, uh, you know, no, no uh, chain split at all. Uh, but right, it's mostly but even, just a safety measure. 
But Eric, I mean, like you were saying, like, oh, we could have made it 60% and stuff. But I mean, it, it only ever got 30 to 40% anyway. So it wouldn't have gone through even if the threshold had been lowered. No, but at, at this point, it was all just political posturing. I mean, really, if you think about what happened with the signaling was people were just starting to stick random data into blocks and using it as a signaling mechanism that didn't actually trigger anything in the, sof- in, in the software that people were actually using. So if I'm running a node and someone decides to stick something in their Coinbase transaction that says, I support the New York agreement or whatever, yeah, okay, that's a way to kind of demonstrate support from miners for something like that, but it's not going to change anything of my software. It's not going to make some blocks suddenly become become valid that, that weren't valid before okay so what you're saying is like but I, I like i guess what i'm trying to get at is i don't know exactly why you're you're being why this point is important to you is it because you feel like this is a bad way to go about doing things because i actually did want to ask you that later like what is the best way you know to make decisions like this is but is that why you're telling me all this the reason I bring this up is because I think there's been a huge misconception by some of the community that there's this kind of political process that's established in Bitcoin that works by minor voting. And that's actually not the case at all. Um, I know that the Satoshi white paper uh, talks about, you know, one CPU, one vote. But I think that it's very confusing in, in a lot of ways. And people have tended to misinterpret that. Uh, back when this, the, the white paper was written, it was still something that was being prototyped. It wasn't even released yet. Uh, you know, but if you look at the original implementation of, uh, of uh, Bitcoin... The software checks to make sure that blocks are valid. So really what miners are choosing is which uh, blockchain to extend and which transactions to include in their blocks. They're not actually getting to choose which rules uh, the the blockchain that they're choosing to follow will enforce. And you see that in all these markets where you have a bunch of different blockchains, like for instance, look at Poloniex or something. You have all these different blockchains and and, and all these mining pools that actually shift their hashing power depending on what's more profitable to mine at, at any given point in time. So really uh, miners are following whatever chain is the most profitable for them to be mining at that particular moment. And they're providing a, a service to users, which is to secure their transactions by making it expensive for someone to reverse it. That's what that's what uh, proof of work actually does. Right. But it's not it's not actually a voting mechanism. It's not actually a political decision making process at all. And it was never designed that way. And I think that uh, this uh, this signaling mechanism that was used for soft forks uh, got kind of played into that whole mis- uh, misunderstanding. So now we have this kind of like theater for all these different, you know, signaling of different uh, proposals and this and that. But that actually doesn't change what the software does unless people choose to run software that actually enforces those new rules. So even if. So, Eric, I just I just want to stop things for a second, because like I feel like, you know, we're, we're getting into the weeds here. I actually probably just really want to talk about this later. Like, what is the best way to do this? Because, like, I, I just need to give listeners a, a framework to also talk about, like, the, for the rest of this podcast. I actually just want to hear from both of you. What deadlines and events are you most worried about over the next few months? Like, what what do you th- what what are some of the deadlines that are coming up? What is going to happen at those moments? What should users be aware of? And what are the risks that happen at each of those points? Okay, so right now we're waiting for BIP91 to activate. What BIP91 does is it requires signaling of uh, the currently deployed version of SegWit, which is running on over 80% of nodes right now, uh, has a particular trigger 
for it to activate. And once it triggers, then at that point, all blocks are going to have to enforce uh, or blocks that use SegWit are going to have to enforce the SegWit rules. So does that mean that immediately the chain um, has the segregated witness feature, which means that lightning can be implemented? Uh, not immediately. That? Not no? immediately. That's just this is just a trigger for the next trigger. It's kind of like a Rube Goldberg device. It just it triggers the next trigger, which is going to be, you know, a two week lock in period and then a two week activation period. So we're probably looking at active of actual SegWit activation sometime uh, probably mid to late August. Okay, so basically if we reach that 80% threshold, which it looks like it'll be today, I think, um, that means that it kicks off like a two-week period of what? Because it doesn't it have to do with, uh, you know, when the difficulty um, yes. actually... Okay, so can you explain that? Yes, so um, the way that SegWit is currently deployed is using what's called BIP9, which is um, which is a signaling mechanism that operates on every retargeting interval, which is every 2016 blocks. Every 2016 blocks, uh, if uh, if 90% of those blocks signal for SegWit, then at that point it locks in, and then you know the people are given two weeks to to upgrade, and then after two weeks. Um, at the next retargeting interval, after another 2016 blocks, at that point, people can start using SegWit transactions. Okay, and this retargeting interval, that has to do with the difficulty, uh, the hashing difficulty on the network? Yes, and it was just chosen because it was a convenient uh, interval that already existed as part of the protocol. So it was decided that that interval was going to also be used for the BIP9 uh, activation mechanism. Okay, but then you were saying so. Then after that first two weeks, then then what happens to what has to happen after that in the next two weeks? So after it's locked in, then two weeks after that, all the nodes out there are going to start enforcing SegWit. So if miners mine blocks that do not enforce it, that include uh, transactions that are invalid according to the SegWit rules, they're going to get rejected by these nodes. So that means that miners uh, have to, uh, you know, if they include SegWit transactions, they have to enforce the SegWit rules at that point. So that's when you can consider the activation to actually have been uh, completed. Oh, okay. So if I'm a miner and I don't enforce that rule and I mine a block, then I don't get the block reward? Exactly. Oh, okay. So there's an economic incentive for them to do this. Mm-hmm, exactly. Okay. So, and then at which point can um, can the different actors in in Bitcoin use the feature of segregated witness? As soon as it's activated, which is going to be uh, one retargeting interval after it's locked in. So it's uh, basically going to, it's probably going to be somewhere in late August, I, I, like a month from now or something like that, um, where people can actually start to use it. Huh, but that sounds like two. Oh, okay. So that so it's like two intervals away. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And if that happens, then that means that the user activated soft fork will not go through, which then means that the risk of a chain split from that will also not happen. Is that correct? That's yeah. True. Yeah. Basically, what happens is if BIP ninety one activates and miners are you know actually start enforcing it, then that kind of makes BIP one forty eight moot assuming that they do follow through with it. However, a lot of users still are running BIP-148 just to make sure that miners uh, follow through on that because most users are actually not running BIP-91. BIP-91 is for miners to enforce among each other. Uh, BIP-148 is for users to uh, check the miners. It's kind of like checks and balances to make sure that the miners are actually following the rules. Okay. 
So um, then it sounds like the next big deadline for people to focus on and in particular to worry about uh, whether or not the the value of their Bitcoins will drop or whether or not they'll suddenly have two different versions of Bitcoin or or even more um, will take place in November. So can you describe what's going to happen then? And actually, Brian, do you want to do you want to do that since Eric's been talking a lot? I mean, the principle behind Segway2x is that it's roughly three months or 90 days past the activation of SegWit, uh, you know, then would be the attempted hard fork. Um, I think it's important to realize that that's, it's not necessarily like a sure thing, right? Like this is clearly going to be a massive um, contentious time period. I think, I, I don't know if Eric agrees with that, but um you know, I, I think there are, there is speculation that a lot of these people that just want to get SegWit out are going to go along with this. And then, you know, once SegWit activates, uh, the landscape could change in terms of support for, for a hard fork or, or any other uh, perceived outcome. And so I, I don't know. I mean, I'm holding my tongue uh, for what will happen, but certainly that's the most important date, I think, uh, in the near future is is what happens uh, within you know that 90 day period. Okay. So I actually, earlier in this conversation, I kind of had you both argue your own side. But one question that I got from Twitter, which I think is a great one, is I want to hear you guys describe for me what you think is the best argument for the other side. Hmm. Well, I, I, I don't really think that there are sides the way that people are, are, are painting it. Mm-hmm. I think that it's kind of like people have kind of created these, you know, straw men and, and tried to kind of pitch one side against the other. Um, from the very beginning, I've been a very strong supporter of increasing block size if it's found to, if, if there's a way to do it safely and a way to do it that, you know, do, that, uh, that doesn't cause a lot of other problems. Um, and, and a lot of other uh, core developers have also been very supportive of this, including Peter Willey, who's one of the main authors of, of SegWit. Um, and actually was one of the big motivations to actually try to merge this into Bitcoin Core was the fact that we could uh, get a block size increase without all of the other uh, issues, including uh, you know chain split risks and, and uh, compatibility Wait, I'm issues, sorry, he w- Peter Willey is a, support, a supporter of Segwit2x? No, no, no. He's a supporter of big, blo- okay, of right. bigger blocks. Also, yeah. uh, if if done in a safe way, and if done in a way that's actually, uh, you know, that has peer review, and that is not going to split the network, or is not going to co- coerce people. And I think that a lot of, you know, uh, at least several uh, of the uh, you know, major core developers, core contributors, uh, since this whole issue was brought up in 2015, at least in the uh, you know discussion forums that that we generally use for our communications, such as uh, the mailing lists and uh, you know the IRC chat channels and other places like that uh, on GitHub, um, the you you know, the general idea was, okay, let's see if we can find a way to increase block size that's safe, that's not going to cause a chain split, that avoids a lot of the political contentious issues, etc. And SegWit was kind of, you know, the solution to, to all these uh, things that we found for the moment. Um, and so I, I, I want to just, you know, make it clear, first of all, that I'm fully in favor of you know, being able to increase block size, how if, if it's possible to do it in a safe way, uh, I don't think that we currently have a way to do it that's safe, given the current political circumstances. Well, and given but the wait, current so technology. Eric, I, so I asked you to argue, you know, what you think is the best argument for the other side, but it seems like you're going back to saying like. A hard fork, no matter when or how you do it, is is a bad idea. No, I'm not saying that at all. No. I think a hard okay. fork would be fine under different circumstances if we had better research under you know for it, and if we actually were able to get market support for it. And right now, it just doesn't look oh, like and, the market. And you don't feel like there's a market there's market support for this when we have every single. A- 
Every single time that uh, that any hard fork threat has been pushed hard, the markets have dropped significantly. Every single time that SegWit has been pushed hard with with the signaling, uh, the markets have gone up. So the market signal almost unambiguously shows that hard forks are not popular in the market, and SegWit is. So yeah, but would I'm, you? But but Eric, but Eric, would you argue that? I mean, the, we're getting SegWit activated right now because of both the combination of the UASF threat and the SegWit two X threat. They're both coming together and creating a scenario where people would rather not have to deal with whatever's worse, and they're going to do it. And we're seeing the market get pushed up. And that New York agreement, I mean, is 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 SegWit plus a two megabyte hard fork. Now, I don't know if people are just uh, bluffing and saying, oh, we want the SegWit and we don't want the two megabyte. We'll just take this for now or not. But it certainly seems like the market is saying we want both of those things and we want to move forward. And the price is going up. I mean, we're getting close to twenty eight hundred dollars now from last week when we were under two thousand. So because we're about to activate bit ninety one. So I don't I don't I don't necessarily buy that. Like the market is rejecting the hard fork. I think hard fork has certainly gotten the connotation that it's just this horrible awful thing that could possibly ever happen. I mean, at some point in time, Bitcoin is going to have to hard fork. Like you said, we'd like to do it in the most safe and responsible way and have give everybody enough time to prepare for it. But we've been discussing this stuff for three years now. And it, we keep saying that, but like, and then there's the hard fork research website you can go to and, and see about SpoonNet and all these other options. But like, at some point, there has to be some progress made. And I think, you know, you're seeing frustration, frustration within core devs as well. I mean, you see Luke Jr. and Greg Maxwell arguing around whether Bit 148 is responsible or not, whether it's too fast or, or this or that. So right, I don't think everybody agrees. It's hard to get people to agree, period. And that's a political problem. That's something that Bitcoin does not solve. And I think that, you know, more people, I wish more people understood that Bitcoin is not a political system. It's just a protocol which defines a set of rules that if everyone follows, it's predictable that, you know, it's going to behave a certain way, assuming that it works correctly. Um, changing the rules now gets into the realm of politics. And mm-hmm. uh, Satoshi, unfortunately, did not give us uh, a system for really being able to, to do that in a way that is, uh, you know, that, 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 that's like spelled out for us. So we're kind of trying to create create a way of doing that but you know just as someone that's been that's had a lot of experience working with the protocol and trying to make changes i can tell you that it's extremely difficult like once there's a certain momentum and a certain amount of market value and stakeholders and all this involved in it, it's very hard to realign people and to you know steer the ship and, and and to get you know people to 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 accept changes to it so um those issues are way beyond just programming and coding or engineering or i mean we're talking politics here and um I, I think that you know people can can write up uh, all this code for for hard forks and you know all these different uh, scaling approaches, but in the end, it's like people need to run the actual software. You need to convince people to run it, and uh, people need to uh, and, and you need to make sure that uh, that you don't get any kind of divergent interests that that you know want to see any kind of uh, situations where they can kind of exploit weaknesses. I mean, because there's a lot of there's a lot of things that can go wrong if there is a divergence of interests and. Uh, you don't get the right checks and balances. Uh, there could yeah. be a yeah, lot of potential you know, hacks and attacks. And, and and this this is the whole issue that I have with the UASF movement is that you know we're trying to get people to run the software. Like you're saying, people have to use it. People have to put it out there into production, right? Like mm-hmm. a, a couple thousand users running UASF is not going to do it necessarily either. Like we need the miners as well. And this whole like 
demonization of like what they're doing is 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 like the wrong way to go about. That's why like we're so supportive of trying to do something with Segwit 2x. Now we didn't know at the time we signed the agreement how whether it would be accepted by core devs or not or any of these other people. We just thought that this was the most pragmatic approach to get everybody on board. The problem is now we have the situation where the miners kind of work out. It works out for them whether we get Segwit or not. I mean, let's be blunt. I mean, if if SegWit doesn't go through and the and the block stays small and the fees go up, they make money off the fees. And if the blocks get bigger and and everything works out and it scales up and they get more fees that way, so you know, it's like yeah. they, they can play games with both sides. And then that's actually what's really kind of like it, it upsets me a little bit that I feel that you know um, maybe. Uh, Interest between a lot of people, especially in the DCG portfolio and, say, like Bitcoin Core developers are more aligned than a lot of minor interests and DCG companies. Um, and, and, and I, you know, I, I kind of feel like, um, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying all miners. I think that there's a lot of great miners out there that are doing a great service for the network and, and they're definitely, you know, doing their job of, of making sure that the network is hard to attack. But um, there's also interest there that, as you point out, uh, conflict with other companies. You know, obviously, miners want to collect as much in fees as possible. Uh, businesses that use Bitcoin want to pay as little in fees as possible, right? And so there's a negotiation that occurs here. Um, I, I think that... Um, you know, for, for definitely uh, none of those fees are going to the developers. I mean, you know, we're not getting paid any. The miners are getting all this money. So yeah. it just feels to me like, like you know, industry maybe like picked the wrong allies when it comes to like actually figuring out like where their interests lie. And, and you know, I, I understand. I, I mean, I, I know that uh, that um, I mean, I don't, I'm not trying to like demonize anyone in particular. I, just, I think that everyone has their own interests and whatever. It's like obviously you have to expect people to be selfish. And if, if you expect people to not be selfish, selfish and for this to work then obviously it's not going to work so yeah let's so let's hold that thought right there um we're going to break now for an important word from our sponsor on ramp and then we'll go back to this really interesting topic so with so many companies vying for people's attention now it's important to stand out from the pack if you're looking to become a go-to brand that lingers in consumers minds check out on ramp a full-service creative agency that helps its clients maximize brand awareness gain market momentum and accelerate growth OnRamp has helped numerous companies do everything from create their branding and identity to redesign their existing website to draw more traffic. Plus, they've helped blockchain startups and projects. Whether you're launching your brand or repositioning an existing organization or just want to freshen your company's look, OnRamp can come up with a tailored design project or a strategic marketing plan that ensures your firm's lead in the market. Learn more and see examples of its work at thinkonramp.com. I'm talking with Bitcoin core developer, Eric Lombroso and CEO of OB1, Brian Hoffman. So we were talking about the politics of this whole thing and about governance in general. And I wanted to ask you guys what you think is the best way for Bitcoin to make big decisions like this going forward. Well, I mean, we, we, there isn't a process right now. I think a lot of people might not be very familiar with, with all the uh, intricacies of it. I think that there's a big uh, kind of uh, clash of cultures maybe between like, you know, free open source software development and more corporate uh, software development. But there is a process for submitting proposals, for getting them reviewed. Uh, there's a, you know, big open community out there for, for you know, doing this stuff. But, it Wait, is, but what's I mean, the process then for deciding between those different proposals? Well, I mean, right now... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. I mean, right, right now, basically, um, people can run whatever software they want. I believe, you know, I believe this is a fundamental right, and this is one of the things that I actually believe was one of my my biggest. Uh 
bones of contention with the with the New York, I mean, with the Hong Kong agreement, and also, you know, a, par- a problem with the New York agreement is that I do not believe in telling people that they need to run specific code. I believe that people should be able to run whatever code they want. Um, uh, if it happens to be code that's buggy or that has problems or that splits them off the network or they end up losing money, well, I mean, caveat emptor. I think that you know that's just part of crypto. If you want to really have control over your own funds, then you know you're also responsible for making sure that you're running stuff that uh that you know that, that works so you, so you support more like a laissez-faire style where it's like not really making decisions it's sort of like let anybody do what they want or i believe that miners should be able to mine whatever blockchain they want to mine you know and, and users should be able to to use whatever blockchain they want to use and merchants should be able to support whatever blockchains they want to support and exchanges should be able to list whatever whatever blockchains they want to list but then in this case where there's, you know, this issue with a network where um, there is more demand for transactions than the network is able to process, how do we, you know, the, like, I, I totally get your your philosophy here, maybe for other things in life. But when it comes to this kind of network where kind of everybody needs to be on board in order for for um, for the whole thing to stay together, what is the best way to make these decisions? But do they? I mean, for instance, Ethereum has been going on without the need for, you know, Bitcoin. I mean, obviously, Bitcoin is used as a reserve currency for for all of crypto. But you know, besides that, I mean, you have other blockchains that that are chugging along. Um, if people want to create a cryptocurrency, that wait, has I, very I don't know what features, you mean by that. I, I don't know what you, you mean by that. What, what like, I mean are by you that talking is, about the fact that Ethereum had a fork, and so the no, people no, no, who no, disagree no, are no, not? No, no. I'm just saying that if you want to create a blockchain that has features that are you know above and beyond Bitcoin, nobody's stopping you. You can create a blockchain. It won't be called Bitcoin, but you can you know brand it and give it you know and make it something big. And if you if you do a better job than Bitcoin, you should be able to win on the markets. I believe right, that that's but, fair. Like, what, I, what I don't, but what people, I, but people that have already invested in Bitcoin, they want to retain that investment. They want or the the value yeah. of it. You know that. But that works both ways, though, because people that invested in Bitcoin also subscribe to a particular set of rules. A lot of users, and and you know, if, if you break compatibility with that, then it becomes a question of whether or not you can really still call that Bitcoin. Because as soon as you start to break rules that some people accepted as part of the rules of Bitcoin, so then- I, Eric, you, I feel like you still haven't answered this question. What is the best way to make decisions about how to change the network? Well, first of all, anything that's technical uh, requires technical review, requires a lot of peer review and making sure that, I mean, this is a lot of cutting edge stuff that, um, you know, hasn't been really fully field tested yet. And we're talking about a bounty of, you know, tens of billions of dollars. So there's very, very little margin of error here. It's, it needs to be really, really carefully reviewed and tested and, 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 and made sure that, that it actually makes sense, uh, you know, scientifically and technically. But then once we have a proposal that actually makes sense on all that, on all that, getting everyone to actually agree to to use it um, really has a ma- is a matter of uh, aligning incentives. There really is no – that's one of the things about Bitcoin is that there's no formal governance structure. And, and I think a lot of people want to keep it that way. There's incentive structures. And um, if you can get the incentives to align correctly with a particular idea that you have, then the network might you know take you up on that. And I think that certain things make it much more likely for the incentives to align. For instance, not disenfranchising people so, or making features optional so or from- you know, supporting back – so from what you're saying, though, then it sounds like what Bitmain and Jihan did was rational because if they, you know, their incentive is for for the long term to have more fees come to them and to have more transactions processed on chain rather than off chain. And so by, you know, and, and Jihan, you know, fully told me, like, he's not opposed to SegWit. What he's opposed to is SegWit without also a block size increase. And so then it sounds like what you're saying here is 
is if incentives are the way that this should be run, then what he did was completely rational because therefore now he's getting, well, hopefully if this goes through, he's going to get what he wants, which is the block size to be bigger and for more transactions to be processed on chain. And so then it worked. But I think that there's like a little bit more, there's a little bit more to it here that I think Eric alluded to in the beginning of this podcast, which was that there's some control issues here that, um, that are getting glossed over. Um, I think, you know, for Jihan to say, I, I support Segwit, but I want a hard fork. I mean, this is a temporary fix. Let's not like fool ourselves. Like even if we move to 12 megabyte blocks, at some point that's going to get surpassed and we're going to be back to, to the same issue. Right. So you know, what's re- unless Lightning Network or something solves everybody's problems, but once again, it still requires on-chain transactions, and and so this is still a problem. And uh, you know, I think you know that it wouldn't be developing the UAHF and these other BU and Bitcoin ABC and all these other things that change the governance model of Bitcoin if there wasn't like more of a power grab also here at play. And that's something that we shouldn't ignore. So you think that Jihan or Bitmain was basically doing this as a power grab against the core developers to be like, hey, I know you guys want this thing, but you can't have it unless you kind of like go along with what I want. Is that what you're saying? My hunch is that I think they felt like they had a lot of control when like Bitcoin Classic and Bitcoin uh, Unlimited came out. They thought they had enough power as miners to kind of force some of this governance stuff through and they realized that wasn't going to happen. So now this oh. is somewhat of a little bit of, I think, a gracious uh, capitulation to, to the market because users were rejecting them as well and not adopting Unlimited or, or, or these others. And they're going to maybe make another run at it. I don't know. This is my speculation. Well, but so, like, obviously, so Brian, you know, I also want to ask you, though, the same question about what. So what do you think is the best way for the Bitcoin community to decide on big decisions like this? Well, I mean, I certainly think that we need to reevaluate uh, how much weight we put on minor uh, signaling and, and influence. I mean, I, I think it's clear that um, they have too much control. Uh, we have to always fly to Hong Kong and, and talk with them every time there's like a problem or we want something done. And I, I think that that kind of is not a tenable long term solution. I, I don't necessarily know what what the problem is, but um, or I mean, what the solution is. But I mean, I think. We're in this weird transition period where we had this like very like like Eric said a proof of concept blockchain uh, with a consensus model and, and a process for like trying to figure out how we get new rules into the protocol. The bit process was created after the fact. You know, all this stuff was kind of added on, and we're getting to the point where maybe it's almost better that like the protocol is is this like it's like TCP/IP like it's not changing all the time. It's not dramatically like we're not adding new rules to TCP/IP every you know, six months, right? Like everything is done another level up. So then making it a settlement layer as you know, which would happen if it, if, um, if we kept the, the limit, the block size low. I, I don't, I don't know if that's certainly, um, the best solution, but I think at least if that was the plan and then everybody understood that, that we could kind of use that as a foundation to build off of. And then maybe more people would put effort into the, the next level up. I think right well, now. Well, that's interesting that you're saying that because since you signed the New York Agreement, which was, um, you know, something that was kind of against that philosophy of keeping Bitcoin more like a settlement layer. It, 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 but it's it's weird that now it feels like you're sort of arguing against yourself. I'm not arguing against myself because I don't 
personally consider myself on a side. I think, uh, I mean, I, I don't you, think either you of us two do. guys that don't necessarily yeah. disagree as much as it seems like, right? Like, I think we're, we're all very pragmatic about what we should do. And I think uh, most of the disagreements are around petty uh, political arguments. I think what we agree that we need to be safe about our, our, our scaling enhancements. And, and I, you know, the reason I told, like I said before, the reason that we support the, the New York agreement is because we feel like this is the best chance that we can get SegWit, which I think most people agree is better than what we have right now, and at least solves some of the problems for now and sets up Lightning Network and helps us. So for you, it's of- just like a pragmatic choice. It's, it's like it's, this isn't yeah. the best thing, but it's like the highest chance of ending this debate and just moving things forward. I think so. And and a lot of people would argue that that's not a great reason to support something because you should always do what's technically the best thing. But you know what? That's not the way the world works, you know, you know, often you have to kind of just sometimes you just have to, like, accept it and move on. And we build off of it because ultimately, I think Bitcoin is stronger if we have miners, big businesses, small businesses, users, core devs, everybody moving in the right direction, like together. I mean, I don't think that we're ever going to really like do much what we're going to do is we're going to encourage people to go off and do altcoin development and and start these other projects i mean we're already seeing that and and yeah. it's sad that a lot of other garbage comes along with that and you know the people that are true bitcoin believers that have been here for like a many years before all that stuff kind of existed they understand that like the core devs that work on bitcoin are probably some of the most devoted and most dedicated people in the space they're the some of the brightest and they don't give up on their principles. And that's, yeah. that's why we're seeing this battle, because well, so these guys I, are the I guys wanna, you want behind that. So I want to ask about something that Eric brought up earlier, which is such an interesting question to me. But um, one of the use, because so I tweeted something like, hey, I'm going to have a big blocker and a small blocker on my podcast, you know, which I asked them. And all these people took issue with the way I framed it. And one that I loved was like, you know, it's more like corporations versus cypherpunks. So what do you think? Because I feel like there is this tension where, you know, Bitcoin started, the early community largely consisted of libertarians. And then the people who more brought it to the masses were these corporate entities like Coinbase, Zoppo, Blog, BTCC. So what do you think about that idea that this is, you know, what's really going on here, that that is what really the the battle is right now? I mean, personally, I think it's kind of a sad argument because, you know, first of all, I think the core devs and and developers in general and a lot of the supporters, I mean, Eric, I mean, call me out, please, if if I'm getting too uh, (laughs) incendiary here. But like, I think they're very vocal and they like try to explain their positions. And I think a lot of the companies don't say anything like I, I've talked to many of the, the people that are leading these companies and they just kind of like, oh, we don't we ignore that noise and they don't defend themselves or their positions. But, you know, well, I think some of them tried. I mean, they 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 for them, it's like too risky, you know, like Coinbase tried to do that Bitcoin classic thing. It failed miserably for them. And, oh, yeah. um, you know, I have personally asked uh, some of the other CEOs in this space about this issue and they just will not touch it. They won't say anything publicly. They definitely have opinions, but they know that if they say anything publicly, that will be the death of them. They'll get embroiled in these debates on Twitter and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. So 
but you know, I do feel like that is kind of what we're seeing happening. Like if if well, they, I they look kind at of burn, they kind of burn themselves, I think, or some of these CEOs, I think, kind of burn themselves uh, in in the whole you know block size debate because I think that they took very vocal positions uh, when the environment might not have been very conducive towards that being successful. And that's not to say that CEOs should never go out on a limb. I mean, I'm also, you know, I also have a company and I also am interested in, you know, making a successful business. And I also want to see Bitcoin scale. And, you know, definitely um, I'm, I'm trying to be as pragmatic as possible. It's not just about being ideological. I, I definitely did not come into this space uh, just, you know, thinking in terms of like, you know, libertarianism or like, you know, anarchy or anything like that. For me, it was really, you know, a practical way to kind of like, you know, build a career and do something that I like. And over time, it kind of grew on me. And I'm like, wow, like this whole concept of self-sovereignty is actually very, very powerful. Um, and, 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 but, and by that, like, do you feel like what's important to make that happen is de- decentralized network? Well, what's important to make that happen is to make sure that people are able to continue to validate things and to make sure that people don't change rules from under them and uh, you know to make sure that people don't like can, cannot easily counterfeit stuff and or you know create money out of thin air that, that is not part of the rules and stuff well, like wait, that. Wait, but but Eric, what what I really wanted to ask when I asked that was, you know, one of the concerns that I've heard about increasing the block size is that it will make it more difficult for small miners to support the network which will then um, increase miner centralization. And so, you know, I feel like there's this tension where a lot of the people that advocate keeping the block size small, it's because they want to keep Bitcoin as decentralized as possible. And then you've got these startups and other um, companies running on the Bitcoin network who are like, oh my God, these transactions aren't going through. It's like causing us all these problems. We've got these users who are really annoyed at us. Like, you know, and so for them, it's kind of like this headache. And then for you guys, it's this philosophical thing of like, hey, we need to keep the network decentralized because already it's so centralized. Am I wrong in thinking that that's... There's, there's That's three why it's points. not black and white. <laughs> yeah, it's not black and white, but I, there, there's three points I want to address here. Um, I think there's there's like three issues that, that you're kind of combining there. One is this backlog. Part of it, is, it just has to do with wallet software and fee calculation software that was just not prepared for full blocks. Um, I mean, obviously, if blocks are full, I mean, it's just an economics thing. If, you know, if supply is low and demand is high, obviously, fees are going to get higher. But better fee calculation heuristics in, in wallet software will make it so that you don't have to wait as long. And I think a lot of the earlier situations with that were just wallets that were not calculating fees correctly. So right, but like, that's oh. only going to take us so far, like yeah. five or ten years from now, when hopefully there's a lot more activity on the network, then what? Well, I mean, we'll, we'll still, I mean, even if you have correct uh, or better uh, pricing, some applications are going to get priced out given a certain level of supply, no doubt. But the issue, okay, so the second issue is um, regarding validation costs. How expensive is it to make sure to, for you to check on your computer that the transactions that you received are actually valid? And that's where we get into issues of bigger blocks requiring more uh, download, you know, a bigger download and more computational effort, more CPU to actually validate the transactions and blocks, etc. Um, right now, the blockchain is you know growing pretty quickly uh, and, and it takes longer and longer to synchronize a node and to be able to actually fully validate for yourself. Now, with better crypto, it's possible that we might be able to reduce this significantly. It's possible that with better technology, we'd be actually able to support much larger blocks without requiring as much computational effort in in, uh, verification of the blocks. And with things like the Lightning Network or off-chain protocols, most people do not need to actually be validating most of other people's transactions. So you only validate a very small percentage of the total transactions that occur on the network. So those are... 
those are really you know good ways to avoid increasing validation costs, which makes it easier for you to actually make sure that uh, you know Bitcoin hasn't been co-opted or you know someone isn't just suddenly creating counterfeit Bitcoins out of nowhere or, or some state isn't deciding to just suddenly blacklist transactions or stuff like that, right? So um, and then the, but the third issue, which I think is the the most critical issue. Um, which I think also kind of received the least amount of attention at first is really how do you actually guide the markets to adopt a particular incompatible change? And if you're going to introduce any kind of incompatible change to a blockchain, uh, you have to get all the markets to agree that now, you know, what we used to call Bitcoin is now no longer Bitcoin. This is the new Bitcoin, which is basically a, a, a protocol replacement. And isn't that sort of what Segwit2x is? I mean, like all these companies that signed are like the big what- companies. Yeah, that's what any hard fork would eventually would, would essentially entail. And I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm just saying it's very difficult to do, and it's more than just writing code. I mean, I've been writing code forever, and I can tell you that writing code is definitely not enough to make that happen. I mean, you need to get people to agree to to run that code, and and that's that's. But it looks really... like that's what this agreement did, right? Yes, I mean the thing is, is it's for it's forcing the issue, right? It's forcing the issue. Like we we all agree that like the hard fork is probably possible. Whether it's smooth or not, that's debatable. But like, it, it needs all this preparation. But the Segwit Two X is saying, look, this is not like a, a super crazy uh, leap to go from one megabyte block size to a two megabyte block size. Let's let's do this. Yeah, so, we can do this. So since so since this is actually such a small um, increase, really, that we're getting, I am wondering, kind of like long term, what do you guys think is the best? plan for scaling. Yeah, see, so that's that's the thing. Like, it's interesting what, what Brian just mentioned, like just going from one to two. I mean, even if we were going to from one to 1.1, the same exact issues with, with chain splits and incompatibility issues would arise. So it's not a matter of, of how much bigger we make it, right? And if we make it bigger, then, you know, are we really, what are we buying? What are we getting for that? Is it really worth the disruptions and all the potential havoc that can be wreaked on the network just well, then, so know, to get we, 2x? Should we hard fork to like four megabytes or eight or, or, or two Bitcoin Unlimited? I think we should be working on better technologies, better crypto, you know, better ways to compress proofs to make it, you know, co- compact proofs. There's a lot of really interesting uh, research that's being done in cryptography right now. Wait, but how long is all that going to take? Like the yeah, congestion see, on the network has... But, but, but going 2x isn't going to take us anywhere either, really, other than just maybe like kicking the can down the road and getting a lot of people upset. So I just, you know... It, it so we'll kick like- the can down the road and maybe during that time we can do all this research on the better cryptography and stuff? Is that kind of what you think? Like, again, going back to my question, what's the what's your idea of the best way to scale long term? Well, first of all, if we're going to do a block size increase, I don't believe we should just bump it up twice and then just leave it at that because then that's that's a precedent that every single time blocks fill up we're going to do another hard fork for that. That just seems totally silly. So, first of all, you know, if we're going to do a hard fork, um, you know, in, in the worst of cases, I would like to see at least like, you know, an X percent increase per year or something of the block size. So we don't need to hard fork every single time, first of all. And second of all, I would love to see a more dynamic or more adaptive kind of system that responds to actual, you know, market dynamics and to have more a protocol that can support other functions besides just paying miners, like, you know, paying relay nodes and paying validation, paying for proofs. You know, there's ways for cryptographically generating like, you know, snarks 
or stuff like that maybe and and paying people using uh, payment channels to be able to do that kind of stuff once you start to get those kinds of incentives now you're talking uh, being able to uh, you know m- increase the capacity to much higher levels without significantly degrading security so but but it sounds like so those are things i i don't i haven't heard much about them and i don't really know much about them but i it does sound to me like they're probably further off and here we have this network that's been congested for a while and so maybe it is not a bad idea to as you put it kick the can down the road and maybe let some of the other technology catch up so it can be implemented later is that but at what price, though? I mean, if if it splits the network and if it causes a lot of discord in the community, and if the mark, if it affects the markets, if the if the price, you know, is, is very adversely affected, is it really worth it just for like a you know a, a small a tiny? Yeah, factor I mean, increase? I guess you know, like what we were saying before, uh, already so much. Well, I don't know about so much, but a lot of economic activity is moving off Bitcoin. Like, you know, how many startups have I talked to where they're moving from Bitcoin to Ethereum or Litecoin or whatever it is? Like already, the fact that there's this much congestion, which maybe isn't, you know, critical from your perspective. Like it's enough where businesses are making other choices and they're not using the Bitcoin blockchain. So I think well, that's, that's why. That's, but the other, the other chain I mean, that's the where the pragmatism comes in though. That's where the pragmatism comes in here. And when we're talking about going from a one megabyte to a two megabyte block, I mean, let's be honest, it's really effective eight megabyte block, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, with Segwit. So yeah. that's a, yeah, that's a that's considerable true. amount. It's not negligible, but it, it's certainly not going to last forever. And I think the thing is, is like, it's, it's kind of what you were alluding to, Laura, is that, you know, if this does at least get everybody kind of like, OK, well, now we're not like just like dwelling on. The, I mean, how much time did we waste on the block size debate? <laughs> yes. Just this silly block size debate right now. I mean, really, I know it's more than that, but still we can't get past it. And people are leaving. Yeah. Some people were actually working on code, though, and working on solutions and working on optimizing a whole bunch of other crap that makes it possible to have bigger blocks. So, I mean, you can't discount the effect. You know, like, for instance, Peter Willey worked on the SecP256 library. This is a library that increases validation, um, you know, reduces validation time considerably. It's like a factor of six or something just from the the, the cost of uh, validating signatures for a block. So this kind of stuff. And then, like, the headers first sync, which he did, like, way before that, also Peter Willey. All these things. And then, you know, Matt Corallo with like the uh, uh, fiber network so that the miners are more able to easily uh, relay blocks to each other. And then um, there was uh, you Eric, know, the compact Eric, those blocks. Are, those, are br- those are brilliant technical solutions that the perception is not feeding out into the mainstream, right? All these things like are people necessary, that are though. Businesses and, 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 and expanding the, the ecosystem for Bitcoin that are making it more valuable, they, they're not catching that. So I don't know. Maybe there is like some kind of communication issue gap There's here. definitely I agree a communication that, gap. I mean, I, agree I mean, all these things are, are necessary. Like amazing innovations. They're I, not I just amazing yeah. innovations. They're necessary. They're prerequisites. Without this, what will happen is that you'll run a node and you will not be able to keep up with the blockchain. It just will not sync. You'll, the, the blockchain will be advancing more quickly than your computer can keep up with it without these advances. If we were to use Bitcoin Core from just a couple of years ago, it would not be able to keep up with today's blockchain. So all of these advances are going on and and, it's, and all these are necessary in order to be able to do a block size increase. So we're running out of time. Um, so I'm just going to ask you guys one last question, which is that as we go forward, uh, you know, every single design decision that we make in Bitcoin is going to require some trade-offs. So when you think about the different kinds of trade-offs that you're willing to make, what, what would you be willing to do to, you know, keep the network growing? Well, I mean, I... I I think that it's, you know, obviously there's risks involved in anything that we're doing right now. It's a, it's a huge project with a huge bounty. It's one of the biggest, like, you know, socioeconomic experiments conducted in history, probably. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, there's a certain risk tolerance that different people are willing to take. Um, and what's I, yours? 
Well, I personally would like to see good solutions to scaling. I think there's some really great ideas, but I would like to see more constructive dialogue first without people just jumping to like specific solutions that they think are, because this is the problem, Laura. But Eric, what trade-off are you willing to make? What trade-off is, I mean, well, I mean, there's there's millions of different trade-offs depending on the situation, right? Yeah. But definitely, for sure, I think the self-sovereignty aspect and the ability to validate transactions for myself is a huge part of what I value in Bitcoin more than anything else. Which is more like the decentralized, uh, decentralization philosophy? Yes, but I would definitely like to grow the network and make it, you know, support way more. I would just like to see better crypto implemented in Bitcoin. So I just want to draw that out. So if that's your priority, then the downside to that, the trade-off that you're willing to make is maybe for, because like essentially if we keep it that way, then that one of the ways to do that would be to keep the block size low, which then is something I think that will cause a lot of problem for some of the bigger economic actors and potentially also long-term for the miners. Is that... Not not necessarily. I mean, there could be ways to grow the block size that are actually smart, that make sense, that we can get a lot of support for, and like, boom, we do it. It's just that the ways that have been, you know, called for so far are just like really brute force, like blunt, you know, things that a lot of people think, well, um, you know, is it really worth the risk? A lot of people are not going to get behind it. It's probably going to cause a lot of contention and potential market disruptions. And is it really worth it for, you know, just like getting a 2x increase, for instance? If it was a thousand X, I'd be like, oh yeah, maybe it is worth it. But you know, if, if my business is just going to, but if it's a thousand X, then you lose your decentralization priority. No, 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 no. You could still do a thousand times the number of transactions without sacrificing decentralization with better crypto and Uh-oh. a better protocol. Okay. And Brian, what about you? What trade-offs are you willing to make? I, I think um, you know I have tremendous respect for the fact that changing a protocol is is very it's very difficult and it's not something you should take lightly. And I certainly think that's the case with the hard fork that's, that's looming over us. But I also think that there, there is some value with trying to get all of the uh, most important actors in the ecosystem together to, to go at this and, and be contributing because right now what you're seeing is a lot of people that are trying to like push against each other. And it doesn't, it just, we've seen several years of this back and forth. And so, so it sounds like for you, like, you know, you want to move forward at the risk of perhaps having a hard fork uh, or sorry, a, a chain split. I, I, I think decentralization is this weird term that people throw out there, but it's a gradient. It's not black or white. Like there's different degrees of decentralization and whether or not, this hard fork to a two megabytes is going to dramatically impact true decentralization of Bitcoin. I certainly personally don't think that that's going to impact it that much. There are others that do. They feel like they will kill Bitcoin. But I think the most important thing is, is like that we just like kind of push through this, we get it, and we do what the market is asking for. And right now we're seeing that people are asking for SegWit and they're asking for another uh, you know, an increase in the in the block size, and so okay, and actually, we don't know about the second part. We definitely know about Segwit, but the second part, I'm still not sure. I have one sure. last question for Eric, which is that you know this change that's happening was uh, implemented essentially without, even though core develop many core developers opposed it. So after this, where does that leave the core developers in terms of their power over the protocol? 
Well, I mean, let me let me just clear up a little bit what happened there. I mean, I feel that there's a lot of communication problems that have been you know, communication has been pretty bad for a long time. I mean, like for instance, most of industry or most of the the DCG portfolio companies, I don't think even really realized like who most of the core developers were, or even like met most of us like until fairly recently. Um, you know, back in 2015, basically like uh, you know they thought that they had like you know the, the, the Bitcoin Core had spokespeople and like a couple developers and and that they kind of represented Bitcoin Core to the industry. And industry didn't really come to talk to us about any of these concerns at all. Uh, we kind of had to pick this up indirectly because other people were complaining, right? And so, um, first of all, it'd be really nice if, like, people in the industry that actually have concerns about this, like, would actually come and approach us and, like, talk to us uh, about this, these things before, like, making decisions and, like, doing full-on, you know, campaigns trying to push particular agendas. Because uh, uh, if we can uh, kind of work on these things and, and get more consensus beforehand, uh, it, it'll, it'll go a lot smoother. So I'm just wondering, like, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, the main developers behind Segwit2x are Jeff Garzik and Mike Belshi. Is that is that correct? Well, Mike Belshi, I don't think, is a developer. It's, it's okay. mostly Jeff and some other contributors on the team. So, and Jeff is with Block, BLOQ, and um, his C, um, or sorry, his co-founder, Matt Rosek, was on the podcast earlier. And then Mike Belshi is with Bitco. So, you know, they're they're kind of like shepherding this massive change through. And so after that, like, where does that leave the core developers? Well, I mean, to be completely honest with you, it was a very small oh, number of core fun. developers that actually were like uh, the ones that were um, they, they, they got advisory roles in companies a couple of years ago and like were kind of like lobbying for this kind of push for the for the you know the vast majority of the protocol development uh, community in Bitcoin. And I'm not just talking about core developers. I'm talking about all the people that work on a whole bunch of different uh, you know other. Parts of Bitcoin uh, or, or, or layers on top of Bitcoin, uh, a lot. I think for the most part, we're in agreement that we need to find uh, better, smarter ways to scale. Uh, but unfortunately, this particular point of view did not really get represented very well to industry a couple of years ago. And so, um, I, I think you know, and, and, and it's kind of weird to see like what happened with Jeff because I think you know Jeff Garzik at the beginning of 2015 was actually very much aligned, I think, with with what most of the uh, development, the protocol development community was looking for. But then. And like towards the middle, there was this very drastic change that occurred. And, you know, unfortunately, I think that he kind of burnt a lot of bridges with a lot of the rest of the. the core yeah. So since team. he's kind of behind this Segwit2x and yet he's burnt bridges and you guys kind of opposed Segwit2x, I just wonder where that leaves things afterward. Like. Do you guys still have as much control over the protocol as well, you? It depends on what people are going to use. I mean, it's, it's it's really up to the users in the end what they decide Bitcoin is, right? All we can do is release code and see if people want to use it or not, and that's what we're going to continue to do. And if people okay. want to use, you know, if people want to do a two megabyte hard fork, and it seems like that's what the markets want, and and there's a huge demand for that, um, I don't think it'll be that hard to make that happen. But I just don't see that right now, and I. But don't, it doesn't. It doesn't seem like the market wants it. They want it. When you, it's hard to forget that, like when when Blockstream was announced as a company and it had so many of the core devs on there and important people in Bitcoin, that that, that the market everybody was so excited about side chains. They were, thought that was the future. They thought Blockstream was like this big company was going to come and help us save it. They were like it, they embraced that. And for the last three years, we just haven't seen the side chains come to fruition and solve any yeah. problems. And yeah, and, and to be and I, and I wasn't part of that at all. I mean, I, I, I thought yeah, the, blo- no, the, the side chain concept was interesting, but I thought that it had a lot of logistical complications, and there needed to be a whole infrastructure in place in order to support that. And I thought that we were still several years away from that. So um, yeah. when, when I worked on Segwit, uh, you know, 
first when when Segway was first developed by Peter when Peter Willie was working on that he was really work he was working on it as a side chain but. When I really got excited about Segway was when we realized that we could actually uh, incorporate it as a soft fork and without needing to use a sidechain. Right. You know, we're we're really over time, um, and sidechains is going to take us down a whole another path, uh, side path. Um, so I actually just want to end it on this note about how excited we are that it looks like Segway's going to go through. I think it will be great. It will bring a lot of innovation with it. Um, we will see what happens in November. It's going to be really interesting. Um, to see what happens between now and then, and also to see how that uh, sentiment is reflected in the price. Um, but thank you both so much for coming on the show. Where can people learn more about your work and get in touch with you? Well, I'm on Twitter, Eric underscore Lombroso, or you can go to my company's website, cypherx.com. And Brian? And uh, I'm uh, at Brian C. Hoffman on Twitter, and you can find out everything that's important about me at openbazaar.org. It's more about the software. Okay, great. All right. Well, thanks, you guys, for joining us today. All right. Thank you so much, Laura. All right, great. So if you're interested in learning more about Eric and Brian, check out the show notes, which are available on my Forbes page, Forbes.com slash sites slash Laura Shin. Unchained comes out every other Tuesday. Please tune in then and also share the podcast with friends and on social media. And remember to review, rate, or subscribe to it in iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, or iHeart. Thanks for listening.